Welcome to Prussian Socialism. We're building up to a lecture or an episode about Spangler. But before I get to that, I want to prove to you that the currently accepted vision of history, the version that's accepted by most people, is completely absurd. And I'm going to do that through this lecture on Mesopotamian history. So first, what is the commonly accepted view of history? In school, I remember history being basically this. There were the Greeks and the Romans, and then before that, the Egyptians, and then there was the Middle Ages, and then this was all basically barbarism, and uh, America was founded, or no, sorry, uh, Columbus discovered America, and then there were the conquistadors, more barbarism, and America was founded, or the, the, the colonies were founded, and there was barbarism, and then 1776 happened, <clears throat> and we had the first inkling of the idea of freedom. Of course, it was an imperfect freedom because blacks were still enslaved. And after that, then we had civil war freeing the blacks. We had other movements to uh, give women the vote, uh, to stop barbarous practices like oppression of homosexuals. And then we had the world wars, which spread freedom to Europe, who were busy oppressing the Jews and other peoples. And then since that, we've had wars in America has had wars in Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan, and this has been, been to liberate the world from all sorts of barbarism. Uh, this is the standard view of history that you get, I think, in schools. Uh, it, is a, it is a ridiculously simple version of a slightly more sophisticated version, which we might call Whig history. Whig history is the sort of ancient or the old uh, British idea that history is one of progress going from ancient times up to the British Empire, uh, material progress and moral progress. Uh, this idea of history was made popular by people like Macaulay, who is a notorious shill for Jewish interests, I might add, but that doesn't necessarily disprove his vision of history, but we'll, we'll take him as an example of Whig history. Uh, he would have said, I mean, he, he's famous for uh, his history of England, and uh, the Whig history should have been absurd to somebody of the 19th century. And I think to most people of the 19th century, it was absurd. Uh, just even based on their knowledge of history, uh, if we exclude Egypt and Mesopotamia and we just look at Greece and Rome and the Middle Ages and the, uh, the modern period of Europe, we see that there is not a, a progression from lesser material wealth and lesser morals to greater morals. Uh, certainly, everyone, even in the 19th century, would agree that Greece of the 5th century BC was of higher moral and cultural value than basically anything that succeeded it. They also would recognize that Rome of the imperial era was of higher material strength and greater industrial output than anything up until probably the 19th century, uh, although you know, maybe, maybe the um, early modern times. The other sort of way to look at this, another sort of version of this history is progress idea, uh, is the Hegelian idea that history is a march of of freedom over time. So Hegel posits that there is there was uh, ancient civilizations like China and India and Mesopotamia and Egypt, where there was only one free person that was the king who controlled everyone else, and then you had Greece and Rome, where there was uh, an oligarchy 
in in for most of the time that that ruled and so you had a few people who were free and then only with the advent of christianity and of of modern uh europe did you have sort of a, a real freedom among many people I understand, you know, one might say that while Hegel was getting at a bigger philosophical, political concept and he wasn't really concerned with history, it's pretty clear that he wasn't concerned with history because this vision, I don't think, really makes any sense. Uh, it doesn't account for the rise and fall of civilizations in the Near East throughout history or the rise and fall of civilizations in, in Europe and uh, sort of going back and forth between different types of regimes, of kingdoms, of, of oligarchies, of a sort of democracies or tyrannies. And... It certainly doesn't explain the world of, of today very well either. Uh, this is also, all, all of this sort of idea of history as progress is very much in the liberal mind as well. We might think of Whig history as being sort of a conservative idea. You think of people like um, Winston Churchill or Leo Strauss might agree with the Whig idea of history. But the liberal idea, that is the idea of, we'll say, current academics, the leftist idea of history, that history is one of basically barbarism up until about the 1970s when things started to get a little bit better and we started to recognize the, the evil of colonialism and of racism and of sexism and that we're still doing away with it. But even in the liberal or leftist view of history, uh, there is the idea of progress and of material progress and of uh, past civilizations being bad, and the idea that we are sort of at the, the height of civilization. It, it is uh, any of these ideas, and there are different permutations. I mean, the, the leftist idea is, is sort of a negative view of everything, but it agrees with the conservative idea of things that we've had a, a progress of materials and of morals over time. These are incredibly arrogant ways to look at things. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily wrong just because they're arrogant. So, you know, if, if one is great, one has the right to be arrogant. But I think they're they're arrogant and they're wrong, which makes them extremely dangerous. As they say, I'm sure you've heard, the pride cometh before the fall. That's exactly where we are now. And so it's instructive, I think, to look at ancient Mesopotamian history, because in Mesopotamia, you have an entire 2,500 or, or 3,000 years of a whole cycle of a civilization that could be compared to that of the Greeks or the Romans or of, of our, our European history or of China or of India. And we can see in all of its modes and patterns, uh, in the literature and the art and the culture, the political developments, we can see almost a mirror image of other histories. I will, let's take as an example to compare, we will compare European history with Mesopotamian history. I will, for, for the purposes of this, let's just throw Spangler out the window and assume that classical civilization is, is bound up one with Western civilization. Well, how much time has elapsed since the beginning of classical civilization? About 2,800 years, right? If we say that Homer is basically the advent of Western civilization, of Western literature, of Western thought, uh, it's been about 2,800 years. Well, how much time had elapsed over the course of Mesopotamian civilization? Roughly the same amount. Writing begins in Mesopotamia at about 3,100 BC, and it goes up until at least, the, the, well, I mean, it continues to the present day, but the writing 
of the ancient Mesopotamians, of their particular culture, of their religion, of their uh, the stories that were being told and the languages that were being used, basically lasted up until the first or second centuries AD. The last tablet, the last record we have that can be dated from ancient Mesopotamia or from the ancient Mesopotamian civilization um, was when it was under the control of, of the Parthians, and that was in about 74, 75 AD. So in other words, this is the year after the fall of Masada and the first Jewish revolt, we have still documents being written in the same writing system, although greatly modified over time, uh, and of, of the civilization that had started over 3,000 years before it. So here we have a almost a test case. You can say, this is a civilization that we can examine without the same passion that we might examine our own civilization. It's, it's hard not to take sides when you're talking about America or Europe or Greece or Rome, because you're either very much for it as it's your culture and your history, or you very much hate it because you're Jewish or influenced by Jewish ideas. And it's very difficult to talk about our own history objectively, because we have to put both of those ideas out of our minds and try to try to analyze it purely and clearly. Well, it's, it's difficult doing that with your own people. It's, it's hard to speak badly of your own family sometimes, or it's hard to speak. Uh, some people are overly critical of their own family. It's much easier to look outside yourself and to pick someone in whom you have no investment and talk about them. Another reason that Mesopotamia affords us this opportunity is that it is a, a civilization that is dead. There is no real continuity to Mesopotamian civilization beyond the first century AD. And even, even then, it had been dying out for centuries. I mean, really, we might say the, that Mesopotamian civilization was basically dead in the, the four or 300s BC, about the time of Alexander. Compare that with now somebody like the Chinese or the Arabs. These are peoples who still exist. They are peoples who still have large civilizations uh, of greater or lesser political organization, of greater or lesser relevance to us, but they are necessarily competitors. And especially the Arabs have been competitors with us and rivals and enemies um, of us since uh, since Roman times or, or, I mean, at least since the advent of, of Islam and, and uh, Muhammad. But Mesopotamia, we can get away from all of that. We can sort of examine things coldly and rationally. The other great thing about Mesopotamian civilization that we don't have for, say, ancient Indian civilization or um, we don't even have for our own civilization is that we have a great quantity of preserved records. And of course, now, obviously we have records of the last few hundred years. We even have records of Greece and Rome. But to give you an idea of the amount of records that we have of ancient Mesopotamia, I want to read you this line from a history of ancient Iraq by uh, a French uh, man who's, a, who's an amateur historian and scholar by the name of Georges Roux. That's Roux, R-O-U-X. I think that's how you say it. I don't know what these French. But he has an interesting little statement in his book about ancient Iraq where he compares how much we know about certain parts of Mesopotamian civilization with, with our own civilization. So here he says, it's the beginning of chapter 13, Indeed, it can be said without exaggeration that Mesopotamia, 1,800 years before Christ, is much better known to us than any European civilization 
or sorry, any European country a thousand years ago. And it would be, in theory, impossible for historians... God, sorry. It would be, in theory, possible for historians to draw a fairly complete and detailed picture of the Mesopotamian society in the 18th and 19th centuries before Christ. That's remarkable. I mean, that means that Mesopotamia in the time of the great king Hammurabi uh, of the famous law code, we have more records of this than we do of the time of Otto the Great, the king of the Holy Ro or the, the emperor of, of the Holy Roman Empire, of the German Empire. We have better records of ancient Mesopotamia for two centuries than we do of times very close to our own and of a people very closely related, related to us, indeed us, our ancestors. This is because ancient Mesopotamians wrote on clay tablets. And so in the 19th century, scholars started to discover these clay tablets in abundance in Iraq. It was known for even centuries before that, that there had been some mysterious writing and sort of wedge shape writing, uh, cuneiform, Latin for wedge form writing, that had been used in ancient Mesopotamia, but it had been forgotten for centuries and, and nobody could read it anymore. The discovery and uh, decipherment of Akkadian, and which is the ancient language of Mesopotamia, uh, one of the two major ancient languages, the other one is Sumerian. The discovery and decipherment of these two languages and their writing system, which we call cuneiform, is one of the greatest and most uh, impressive feats of Western scholarship, indeed of any scholarship. In the 19th century, like I said, nothing was known about this writing system. It was vaguely known from some monuments uh, that had been seen around the Middle East, particularly a, an inscription at uh, in Iran at, at a place called Behestun. This inscription had been put up by Darius the Great, that is the king of Persia, who was infamous or famous for invading Greece in 490 BC uh, and being defeated at Marathon. Darius put up an inscription in three languages at, uh, at Behestun, the first language, is now known to have been a very archaic version of Persian. The second one is a language called Elamite, and the third is Akkadian. That is the one of the ancient Mesopotamian languages. Imagine now for a second that you don't know any of these languages. How do you go about deciphering them? You've probably heard the story of Champillion, the Frenchman who deciphered the Rosetta Stone, which was discovered in Napoleon's uh, excursion into Egypt. And the Rosetta Stone was, was how we deciphered Egyptian hieroglyphics, the, the priest writing of ancient Egypt. Champillion had the advantage of a trilingual text, three languages. And one of those languages was already known. It was the uh, Greek language. So he, he already had one. And he was making a certain assumption. He was assuming that the other two had encoded the same message. And it was an impressive feat that he was able to decipher it. He had to work through the second language, which is a Demotic Egyptian. It was a, a sort of like a, I don't know if it was Coptic per se. Coptic is the, the descendant of the ancient Egyptian language that was spoken in Greek and Roman times and even up until the 13th or 14th centuries and is still used as the liturgical, as the church language of um, Coptic churches. But basically that second Egyptian language was sort of known. It was written in a script that, that wasn't really known, 
but it was it, it had modern compare um, things that it could be compared to, and that is uh, in the form of Coptic, which was sort of known to scholars at the time. And he could he could sort of look between the Greek and that Demotic Egyptian and, and and get an idea. But then the third script, that hieroglyphic script that was seen in monuments all over Egypt and and even farther afield. Uh, because they'd been moved in Roman times, some of them, and, and whatever else. Even that other script um, was completely unknown. And it was in a very difficult ideographic script. I think ancient Egyptian has something, it's not as many characters as Chinese, but it's uh, two or 3,000 like commonly used characters that are mostly ideographic. That is, they mostly, each character mostly encodes one word or one idea. There are phonetic elements to it but for the most part when you write ancient egyptian you have to be writing in uh, ideograms and logograms one picture one word what's more remarkable about the decipherment of the cuneiform scripts is that we didn't have something to start with so there were a bunch of scholars in the early 19th century who, who worked on this i'll, I'll mention a couple of them uh, the fellow who gets the most credit for it is Rawlinson, was an Englishman um, who, who completed the decipherment of Old Persian. That is the, the first language of those three that were at Behestun in the Behestun inscription. The other one that ought to be mentioned, I think, uh, is Gautifend. Uh, he was able to look at this Old Persian script, the first script. I mean, these all were written in cuneiform writing, but they encoded these three different languages. He was able to look at the first one and figure out, based on educated guesses, that he that it meant great king, king of kings, son of X. So in the case of Darius, he was able to sort of guess what the words meant. And because that first inscription in Old Persian was written in a alphabetic script, that is, it was it looked like cuneiform writing, but there was only about 25 or 30 or 40 characters in the whole set. Uh, and it was being used alphabetically because this, this inscription was written about, um, you know, in the fifth century BC in the reign of Darius. He was able to figure it out. Uh, and he was also able to compare it with known languages of the time, such as modern Persian, or more importantly, Avestan, that is the dialect in which the um, the scriptures of the Zarathustrians is written uh, and is distantly related to Old Persian. And he was also able to you know, rely on other languages like, like Sanskrit, which is uh, also related to Avestan. And that's a, that's a whole fraught question, which I won't talk about. But he, other scholars then, uh, including Rawlinson, were able to, to fully decipher the Old Persian based on Gadafen's guess. And once they had the old Persian bit, then they could look at the other two scripts and and based on the assumption that these three things all said the same thing. Elamite was a tough one to crack. Elamite was a language that was spoken in, in southern Iran, uh, sort of that area right next to Iraq, uh, what's now Arabistan. And it was it was there's less rec there are fewer records available in Elamite. But the more important one is that that third one, Akkadian. So Akkadian, is a Semitic language that first started being written in about um, about 2300 BC. It was starting to be written under the reign of a famous Babylonian ruler who we'll talk about more as we go on, uh, Sargon of Akkad. This Akkadian script, or um, 
cuneiform script, but Akkadian writing continued to be used up until um, the first century AD. What was difficult about it, or what was, you know, I'll start with what was easy. What was easy about it is that the Akkadian is a Semitic language, so it's distantly related to Arabic, uh, Hebrew, uh, Amharic of, of Ethiopia, or, or Old Ge'ez of Ethiopia, and so, or also Aramaic, the language of Jesus. So it was able to be seen and compared with, with modern examples. But what was very difficult about the ancient Akkadian is that it wasn't an alphabetic script. It was mostly a syllabic script. So that is a, a script where there is a different sound, sign for each syllable in the language. But it was actually more complicated than that because many signs could be used to represent several different sounds. Uh, many sounds had several different signs to represent them. And moreover, not only was it syllabic, but it was also ideographic or logographic in that many of the signs seemed to represent whole words or whole ideas. And furthermore, some of those signs that represented whole words or whole ideas could also be used to represent sounds. So untangling all of that was extremely difficult, and it took uh, decades of academic work to figure it out. But Rawlinson gets a lot of the credit because he and a couple other scholars were uh, sort of given a challenge by the British Royal, Royal Asiatic Society of deciphering a newly found cuneiform tablet. And they, they had a big test and all three of them independently came up with similar or, or nearly identical translations of the cuneiform tablet. And so the Royal Asiatic Society then sort of a big publicity stunt declared, oh, we've discovered and we have uh, deciphered this ancient language of Mesopotamia called Akkadian. Now, ancient cuneiform, I said that that's the writing system. It's sort of the same way that uh, we might speak of Latin script or Cyrillic script or Arabic script. And these scripts can encode different languages. So English encodes often French and German and Italian, uh, and Cyrillic often encodes Russian and Bulgarian and uh, Ukrainian, if that's a thing. Then the cuneiform script also encodes not only Akkadian, but some other ancient languages. The most important one is called Sumerian. So Notice I said that Sumerian or Mesopotamian writing began in about 3100 BC and Akkadian language, we only have attested back to 2300. Well, that gap, that 800 year gap is filled by the language called Sumerian. Sumerian is, unfortunately for scholars, not related to any living language or any known dead language. It is a, a linguistic isolate. Uh, compare, uh, you could compare it to, say, Basque of uh, northern Spain and southern France, that it's a, it's a language that just doesn't look like anything else. It's, immense, it's really strange if you look at this language. You can't see any similarities. You can't, you can't rely on any of your instincts or intuitions. You have to really figure it out from the very basic level. Sumerian is thought, I mean, some scholars posit that it's related to some of the languages of India or perhaps related to Elamite, that second language on the Behestun inscription, but that's all con conjectural. Nothing has been able to be proved and it's, nothing has been accepted as, as definite. So as far as we can tell, Sumerian is a linguistic isolate. Sumerian is interesting because throughout the course of this 3,000-year civilization, Sumerian was still used. So 
even when Sargon of Akkad started writing things down in Akkadian, and that became most the dominant language of writing, uh, or at least the dominant language of, of, of speech in Mesopotamia, it and later the dominant language of writing, but it wasn't the only written language. Sumerian was still used up until very late times in Mesopotamian civilization as a lingua franca, or as a, um, actually not quite a lingua franca, but a a classical language, the way that we might still write Latin today. Uh, it was still known, and uh, scholars still had took a great interest in it. And in fact, that was how scholars of the 19th century were able to figure out how to read Sumerian. Remember that ancient Mesopotamia had, we have many, many, many records of ancient Mesopotamia because they're all preserved in clay tablets. Once we were able to read the scripts, uh, the cuneiform, and read the languages. Then we were able to slowly piece together what their literature looked like, what their how their governments functioned, what their religion looked like, and we were able to do it from their own perspective, which is something that, um, as I just read to you in that that um, that quote from the ancient Iraq book, something that we can't even do for certain periods of our own civilization where we just don't have records. Sumerian was able to be deciphered. Through these ancient texts, uh, scholars found sort of dictionaries and, and practice works, workbooks, practice word lists for what would have been students of ancient Mesopotamian times who spoke Akkadian and who could read Akkadian and then were trying to learn the older language, the Sumerian. Another thing that makes, one final thing on, on the comp complexness of the ancient language and of what a feat this was of Western scholarship to figure it out is that Akkadian itself has a lot of uh, a lot of the signs actually represent are just straight up Sumerian signs. So they'll use Sumerian words in their own writing, and and presumably these would have been pronounced as Akkadian Semitic words, even though they were still being written exactly like the old Sumerian words. Perhaps you could think of um, the way that in 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 modern English text you might see something like e.g. for uh, example or um, uh, better uh, cf for confrator for latin phrases or etc etc and so on and we we might say it as and so on or we might say it as etc but we're using this ancient language and we're just sticking it into our own text well akkadian is full of that sumerian was very much uh still the important and uh, culturally you know dominant basis of of their their writing system and of their culture so moving on to the records I want through the course of this lecture to point out a couple things to you. First of all, I want to, and I hope I've already sort of made this clear, but I want to give you an idea of how and why ancient Mesopotamian civilization is so interesting. As I sort of outlined at the beginning, it really breaks the idea that civilization is one of progress. If we look at ancient Mesopotamia, we can see a rise some falls and other rises, other great flourishings, and then falls, and finally a, a long decay and death. And we can see similarities in the political system over time, uh, with the develop uh, similar to the development of our political systems. In early Mesopotamia, they had mainly city states. In Samaria, that is southern Iraq, what's now the Shiite parts of Iraq, uh, big city states. You've probably heard of some like Ur or Lagash or Isin or Kish or. Uh, Nippur is the other famous one. As time went on, you started to see the rise of great empires, 
Sargon of Akkad was the first one of these empires. He was an, an Akkadian Semitic empire, and he managed to control the Sumerian-speaking south and build an empire that extended perhaps as far as the Mediterranean and controlling that whole area of Mesopotamia, what's now basically Iraq and, and uh, eastern Syria. And then you have, after that, another sort of reaction in the south. You have a big empire with uh, the third dynasty of Ur that many some scholars have compared to a totalitarian state that the, in the way that it organized people and used compulsion. After the Ur III dynasty, the third dynasty of Ur, there was something of a collapse. And uh, then a, a, another dynasty at Babylon. Uh, Babylon was a new city, and Hammurabi is the most famous king of that dynasty, and, and deservedly so. His dynasty lasted on and off for about 200 years. You had a big period of invasions and whole centuries where we don't really know much. Uh, invasions from the north, from uh, the Anatolian plateau, from the Iranian plateau, uh, incursions from the the, uh, the western desert, that's from like the Syria area, some of the peripheral areas of Mesopotamia. Then you sort of had a, a rise again of imperial states in Mesopotamia with uh, the rise of Assyria in the north and the establishment of a big empire encompassing uh, Assyria went back and forth. It actually had two periods of greatness, but in its, at its height, it was able to control all of Mesopotamia, all of Syria, and even uh, much of the Mediterranean coast, and easily make incursions into Anatolia and Iran. So in this whole scope, you can kind of see, and this is similar to Western history, if you think of, you think back to, back to the time of Machiavelli and Dante and of the Holy Roman Empire, who had many small city-states throughout uh, Europe, and only empires were slowly starting to rise around Paris or around, around um, uh, Spain, Toledo, and Madrid. And toward the end, you started to see bigger and bigger empires, more and more centralization of control, more and more efficiency in the tax systems and in the military systems, government systems, more complexity but also way more brutality. And uh, as, as these empires wore on, they had to extract more and more and more from their people in order to keep themselves alive. So building a great empire, it's great because you might, you know, having a great empire means that you can stave off foreign invaders and you can, you can uh, open up trade a little bit better than it would have been under the restrictive borders of little little city-states, as, as was the case early on in the civilization. But as you develop, um, empire brings its own problems in its train. The other reasons that Mesopotamia is particularly interesting is it's well-recorded, as I've, as I've already laid out. And it also, uh, thanks to the great records that we have of Mesopotamia, we've been able to corroborate some of the stories of the Hebrew Bible. Now, that's not to say that those stories are true, but we have other versions of those stories, particularly the story of the Great Flood that were discovered in Mesopotamian uh, records in cuneiform and sort of uh, affect how we interpret the biblical stories, which up until the 19th century were only known through the Bible and didn't have any kind of uh, other version available. Now we have other versions available of some of these stories. And we sort of see, we can see ancient Middle, uh, ancient Middle Eastern history from not only the Jews' eyes, but through the eyes of the Iraqis or the Mesopotamians.
The other thing that I want you to keep in mind through this lecture is the relevance of ancient Mesopotamian civilization. A couple of the conventionally given reasons for its relevance are things like they were the first people to do advanced mathematics. The Mesopotamians developed a very, um, I guess you'd say, they developed sort of a, a algebra. I'm not a huge math person, but from what uh, the scholars that I've read have said about ancient Mesopotamian mathematics, it was far more advanced than a lot of people would think. Uh, and it, it, they were able to do functions that uh, now are, are called algebra and, and even some like primitive trigonometry. They were less interested in geometry. I mean, we know the ancient Greeks loved their triangles and loved their, their uh, geometry and their lines. Uh, the Mesopotamians were more interested in the numbers themselves. And I think uh, that had to do mainly with their interest in astronomy. The Mesopotamians in their development of mathematics have given us a lot of things. The, ba the idea of basing things on 60, such as 60 minutes in an hour, um, 60 seconds in a minute, 60 seconds in a degree, or sorry, 60 minutes in a degree of an angle, 360 degrees in a circle. These come from the Mesopotamian numerical system, which was based partially on 10, but also on 60. So you would write the numbers one, two, three, four, one to, to nine would all be written uh, with one wedge for each number. And then 10 was a like a I guess, no, sorry, put it this way. One was a, was, a, was a vertical stroke, two was two vertical strokes, and so on up to nine. Ten was a wedge. Twenty was two wedges all the way up to 50. And then 60 had its own symbol, which was confusingly also a single wedge stroke, just like the one. Because of this, the Mesopotamians later developed in their, their numerical system a way to denote the absence of a 10. So 61 would be written downstroke, space, downstroke. Um, so this, you know, some scholars will say, well, this is the first instance of, of a, of a zero or of a, a plate, a, a numerical system based on place. So that's, that's sort of interesting in its own right. But the Mesopotamians did give us the 360 degrees in a circle. And they also were the first to name the constellations and develop the pseudoscience of astrology, which is still popular today. A perhaps more relevant to us reason that ancient Mesopotamian history is important. I mentioned the Whig history, the idea of progress in history being untenable. It's also that I think a, a good one is that ancient states were more complex than we assume or many people would assume today. You may have heard people talk about ancient civilizations like Rome and say things, uh, sort of a, a radical skepticism has come into our thinking about Rome, for instance. And I'll compare this to Mesopotamia. Some scholars, uh, or I should say pseudo-scholars like Mary Beard, the infamous British classicist, will say things like, well, Hadrian's Wall is just a, a building. We don't know what it is. We don't know what its purpose was. And she bases this, radi this radical skepticism on the idea that uh, well, we have no direct reference in classical literature to what this was, so therefore we can't draw any conclusions about its function. Uh, 
okay i mean we don't have a lot of records about ancient rome we don't have we don't have their tax records we don't have their censuses we don't have their court records we don't have really anything except for the things that were copied through the middle ages and some inscriptions uh things copied through the middle ages uh great historians and great philosophers of ancient times great poets uh, horace and virgil and uh historians like livy and uh even greek writing historians of polybius tacitus we have a lot of the processed information about ancient rome but we don't have a lot of the raw information the raw data because they're keeping it on papyrus or they would have been keeping it on papyrus they weren't they weren't um, taking the census of Augustus's time and marking it down on stone. We don't have the records. We only maybe have historians who talk about the existence of such a census or the biblical stories of such a census. This, I think, radical skepticism uh, leads to th people saying things like, well, the ancient Romans didn't have a standard means of training military officers. They didn't have... SOPs about how their uh, government functioned. Uh, we it, it leads to a lot of negative conclusions that we can't really actually make because we just don't have evidence one way or the other. But I think deductively, if we look at ancient Mesopotamian civilization, we do have much of this minor and unimportant uh, record keeping preserved because it's in clay tablet form. So we have things like marriage and divorce records. Uh, records of loans and defaults, records of taxes and, and trade and receipts. We have a lot of the petty little things in, in great volume uh, from Mesopotamia. And much of this work or much of this corpus of writing of, uh, has very little been analyzed and translated into modern languages. So I think it's, it's, it's a shame that it isn't known but we do actually, in theory, we should be able to see that a civilization like Mesopotamia uh, for periods when it was writing down a lot and was well organized, we can see the sorts of things that they were doing and that they had to do even just to maintain an empire like Sargon of Akkad or the empire of the later Assyrians or of, of Hammurabi. We can see that even just maintaining control over one region of Mesopotamia and, and perhaps uh, reaching into Syria and, and maybe some of the outlying areas or maybe less, we can see the amount of paperwork required. So I think it's only safe to assume that with a civilization like Rome controlling the entire Mediterranean basin and even as far north as Britain and well into Central Europe, that just the logistical requirements of such a civilization would have necessitated a lot of the things that we arrogantly now assume were only developed in modern times. Such things like standard operating procedures and uh, minute regulations about how things are done are usually not the sort of things that great historians are interested in writing about. And, you, and they're certainly not the things that scribes through dark ages are interested in copying. The only way you're going to know that such a thing existed is if you have the original. And of course, that's possible in Mesopotamia, and it's not really possible. It's, it's to a lesser extent possible in Egypt because of the dry climate, but the Egyptians kept most of their records on papyrus. So um, Mesopotamia is, is valuable and, and interesting in that regard. That leads me into another particularly relevant part about Mesopotamia, which is that the whole science of Assyriology 
That is the study of ancient Mesopotamia, even though Assyria is just a part of that, but it's Assyriology encompasses the whole thing. Assyriology shows the weakness and ineptitude of current academia. Now, why do I say that? I say that because ancient Mesopotamia, cuneiform, all of this was discovered and started to be worked on about 150 years ago. In fact, early on, after the decipherment of cuneiform, it was very popular. And a number of the books still available and in print today about ancient languages like Akkadian and its dialects, Assyrian and Babylonian, are just reprints of books written around the turn of the last century, of around 1900. It's interesting reading the introductions to some of these books. They will talk about how such e uh, easy introductory textbooks for these ancient languages have become necessary because so many students are interested in learning them because they're interested in deciphering the ancient works of Mesopotamia and going into that field. That was true before the First World War. It's been 100 years since then, and we comparably, comparatively have very little to show for it. The sort of great discoveries in Mesopotamian literature were made in the late 19th century with the discovery of the Epic of Gilgamesh and uh, the story of the Flood, which is included in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And uh, I mean, there are, there are other works as well, but that's, that's the one that everybody knows. There has been very little done, or I mean, there's been a lot done, but there is so much more to do. Any uh, book on Mesopotamia will mention that it's probably going to take centuries to translate and process all of the ancient texts that we've discovered. Many of these are sitting in university libraries and in museums and have not even been touched. They've not been translated. They've not been transcribed. They've not even been looked at. This is shocking when you think about what the rest of academia is doing. And I don't just mean the feminist studies and the race studies and all that bullshit. I mean, even things like how, how many essays and, and uh, PhD theses are written about some obscure English writer or American writer, like say Nathaniel Hawthorne or Mark Twain every year. It must be dozens or hundreds. Does any more time or effort or money need to be put into that when we have whole civilizations wherein there might be? I, I think it's, it's I, I, I would approach this with a certain amount of skepticism, but it might be that in these Mesopotamian archives that we have unearthed, you might have great works of philosophy that we've just not discovered. Maybe the ancient Greeks weren't the first to do philosophy. I think that's you know, a broad claim. I think it's probably unlikely given um, that we haven't found it yet. But it is certainly possible. And even if, if we don't have philosophy that would meet the standards of, of Greek skepticism, we don't have anything that does, um, that asks questions about how do we know about epistemology. Uh, it doesn't really approach philosophy in a method, in a methodical way, maybe we at least have other works of literature or other historical records. In fact, almost certainly there are uh, untranslated works of literature or um, historical records. And then, in addition, the great amount of basic everyday business and government records that would allow a historian to produce a very clear and distinct picture of ancient Mesopotamia that simply have not been translated or even looked at. So I know we, we are a, it's sort of weird, um, but 
the political implications of this are, you know, if you're a, if you're an Assyriologist today, you ought to support the NJP because we're the only people, I mean, at least me, the only people interested in, in directing more funding to useful academic pursuits like Assyriology. Um, you know, that's it's probably a niche appeal, but I think it really does. It is an indictment of our entire academic system that with all the millions of dollars, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars being thrown at Harvard and Princeton and Yale every year, that they cannot, they have not finished the work that they should have started in 1850. And actually, not only just finished it, but they're not even doing it. They're barely even looking at it. At it. Assyriology is, is just simply not, not an interesting subject to people. And I, you wonder why. It seemed it, the only conclusion or the main conclusion I, I would suggest, other than base economic concerns, is, is just that Assyriology isn't interesting to the powers that be because it undermines uh, the prevalent view of history. If we had great discoveries being made in Assyriology now about how, say, decadent ancient Babylon was in the 700s or 600s BC, well, that would undermine the idea of eternal progress of history. Another aspect of ancient Mesopotamia that I think is relevant to us and interesting is the relationship between the desert and the settled areas. This is sort of a theme that runs throughout Mesopotamian history from the advent of writing up until Alexander and the Persians and even beyond, even, even one could argue up to the current or the modern day. Mesopotamia, of course, is a sedentary civilization. I mean, that what is what civilization is. It, it has to be sedentary. It has to be based on agriculture. Uh, it has to be based on uh, a surplus of food, which can then go to support higher classes of society. You're, think of your, your professional warriors, your, your priests, your government officials. You can't have that sort of organization uh, without a surplus of food. And that's probably why uh, civilization emerged in southern Iraq before anywhere else. I mean, it all, then very soon after that emerged in uh, the Nile Valley and then also in the Indus Valley. But throughout Mesopotamian history, you see this interplay where a great state or, or set of states, uh, city-states maybe, rise up in the agricultural zone, southern Iraq, and then they are overwhelmed by invaders from the outside. Now you'd ask yourself, well, where did those invaders from the outside come? I would suggest that it's probably due to the success of the civilization itself. Once the civilization becomes more organized and is able to have greater and greater surpluses, then it starts trading with its neighbors. Once it trades with its neighbors, they're able to have surpluses and they're able to organize themselves a little bit better. As the core civilization, think of the Sumerians, begins to it starts to get top heavy the 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 leadership and the military start to need to take more from the farmers and the people in order to sustain themselves because more people want to get into that top class so they start having to strip the lower classes for more and more resources this leads to a general weakening of the political control of the agricultural state and a relative increase in power of the surrounding tribes or peoples who are benefiting from the material surpluses, their populations are able to grow, they're able to organize themselves into bigger groups, 
And then at a certain point, they see the weakened central state and all of its riches and they their predatory instinct kicks in and they go and they take it. This is basically what happened with Rome. Uh, it's, it's kind of what's happening to us now with uh, export of Western goods all over the world and of uh, Western processes. So it, it's, it's perhaps not provable, but it's certainly noticeable through Mesopotamian civilization. This is what was happening. Uh, at first, like I said, you had the states of, of Samaria. And then the Semites, the non-Sumerian-speaking peoples in the north of Iraq became powerful with Sargon of Akkad and his grandson Naram-Sin. They were able to establish an, uh, an empire. Later on, you had another Semitic invasion about 1500-1600 BC. You had the Amorites who came in. And then about 1000 BC, you had the, another, yet another Semitic invasion from the desert area, from sort of the, the western Syria area, um, the Aramaeans. The next great invasion came from the Aramaeans, also from the sort of western desert area that is uh, what's now like Syria, northern Mesopotamia. And uh, at that time, Aramaic, the language, started to replace Akkadian as the main language of the people. Uh, it took centuries for Akkadian to finally die out, but Aramaean became the lingua franca of the Middle East. And this isn't really remembered, but it, it was the main speech from about the time of the Assyrians, uh, even though they were still writing in Akkadian, but it was the main speech, uh, definitely, and it was the official speech from the time of the Persians until the arrival of the Arabs uh, with the arrival of Islam. And Aramaic, Aramaic was still, in its form, Syriac was still popular and much used. Even beyond that, much Aramaic literature survives from even uh, the Islamic times. So that's about a thousand years or over a thousand years where Aramaic was the major language of the Middle East, of uh, the Levant and uh, Mesopotamia. This pattern of desert peoples coming in and ruling over Mesopotamia continues arguably even into modern times. A, another example of it, uh, so I've said the Aramaeans, the next big power in Mesopotamia was the Assyrians, who kind of arose around the same time and in, in a similar area, in that northern Iraq area. They weren't really, I guess you could say they were, they weren't really nomadic or, or pastoralist, but they were more from, they were from the edge of the civilization. I mean, the core area, the core economic and agricultural areas were, were the center around Babylon and the south around Ur and, and Nippur uh, and the other Sumerian states, or formerly Sumerian states. Assyria... It's funny, when you think about where the Aramaeans came from, where Assyria arose, this is exactly the part of the world where ISIS has arisen today. Why do I make that comparison? Why is it interesting? The Assyrians were known in ancient times for being the most, the best organized people ever up to that point. They, had, they were able to build the biggest empire. They had the most uh, powerful military. They from, they were um, an established state, and they had continuous rule for about 300 years, from about 900 to about 600 or so, uh, when they were challenged by, again, uh, they were sort of challenged by the people uh, in, in Babylonia. The Neo-Babylonians were able to get, get together and sort of revolt against Assyrian power. But there was a good 300 years where Assyria was dominant. And I read in one book said uh, saying that 
the Assyrians were, were thought to have been able to put or to maintain in the field about 400 or 500,000 men, which is extraordinary. Uh, that's like a, a size of a military that you would expect from perhaps from the Romans. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that they were able to put that many into the field in the same place at the same time. That would have been even beyond their logistical abilities. But the fact that they were that they had approximately almost or almost half a million men under arms at certain points really just speaks to the uh, the brutal, the brutally efficient organization of their state. Um, the Syrians were also known for being extremely cruel. Uh, Assyrian kings often bragged of their elaborate tortures that they exacted on uh, rebels. They liked to flay people alive and display their skins on the walls of cities. And I, I compare them to ISIS just because I think Assyrian power had to ri arise in the area that it did, that is northern Iraq, for the same reasons that ISIS arose in recent uh, years. And that's because of the pressure of the surrounding areas. So if you think in Assyrian times, 900 BC, Mesopotamia had just undergone invasions, or had over the centuries undergone many invasions from the desert, we'll think of the Arameans and the Amorites, but it had also gotten pressure from the northern re regions, from the mountains of uh, and the plateaus of Anatolia and Iran in the form of peoples like the Mitanni and the Hurrians and the Kassites. Um, and so Assyria being in that zone, that, that plain, that indefensible land in between the mountain peoples and the desert peoples, and then to their south, the sedentary but highly developed and very rich economic zone of southern Mesopotamia and Samaria, or what, what they would have called back then Babylonia, and, uh, Sumer and Akkad, Sumer and Akkad. Assyria, to survive as an independent state, could only do so if its, if its neighbors were very weak and were not going to bother with it, or if it itself became very strong. And, and in this, we kind of see a, a parallel with the history of um, Russia, for instance. Russia was weak and disunited and, and had to unite in order to maintain its freedom because of the raids of the um, and the pressure from the steppe peoples over the centuries, whether it be the Pechenegs or the Mongols or the Tatars or the Khazars or, or any Turkic people, Scythians, whoever. That steppe zone just south of Russia was a constant danger to the forest zone peoples around, well, what's now Moscow, but uh, it was a constant danger to the Slavic peoples of the, the forest zone. And in order for there to be a Russian state, well, it necessarily needs to be a highly organized and rather brutal state. Uh, the same is uh, could be said of, of Germany. Uh, Germany, you see through German history, surrounded by, I mean, because it's not a fair comparison if we're talking about the French and the Italians and the Swedes and the English as if they were the Pechenegs or the Mongols, but the Germans were, were similarly exposed uh, in an exposed position, an indefensible geographical position and sometimes have been able to develop very strong and uh, well-organized empires. So we look at the Assyrians as another example of this in that zone in northern Iraq. And then ISIS, I would say, is sort of a natural phenomenon and a, a similar phenomenon because of the collapse of Iraq after uh, the American invasion and the collapse of Syria thanks to uh, 
Israeli tricks and American tricks. And you know, if you create a power vacuum, and also the wars of the, the Turks and the Kurds, and sort of the ongoing simmering wars between the Turks and the Kurds in Anatolia, I mean, you, you are just creating in that land of Ashur a power vacuum. And eventually those people who are, in a way, the, the descendants of the ancient Assyrians are going to get their shit together and they're going to organize themselves as some sort of state. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been other um, other factors that produced ISIS, but it is sort of a an interesting thing to note that in that zone, northern Mesopotamia and eastern Syria, it's just sort of a natural place for a state to emerge. And I think the British recognized that when they set up the Iraq mandate because they chose to put the Sunni Arabs in charge of the kingdom of Iraq. Um, Part of that was because they were using the the family of the Sharif of Mecca, and they put his son Faisal on the throne of Iraq. But they also they, that monarchy, that Hashemite monarchy of Iraq that lasted until 1957 or 8, 50, 58, was backed by the organization of the sort of Sunni tribes, that 20% of Sunni Arabs who live in the areas of you know, Tikrit and Fallujah and think of uh, and up, up as far north as Mosul and Erbil because that's sort of the natural warrior class of Iraq. And if you look through Mesopotamian history, you, sort, you see a lot of the same thing. After the brief, well, I shouldn't say brief, the, the dominance of, of uh, the south of Sumer for 800 years up until about 2300 BC, you see repeated emergences of great powers in sort of central to northern Iraq. So first we have Sargon of Akkad and his dynasty. Then we have Hammurabi and Babylon. Then... Uh, you have a little bit farther to the north, but you have Assyria. And only after 300 years of Syrian Assyrian dominance and brutality did you finally see a reaction in southern Iraq in the form of the what it's called the Neo-Babylonians or the Chald, uh, Chaldeans uh, around the city of, uh, of Babylon uh, who were able to sort of challenge Assyrian power and set up their own dynasty for a, a, well, about about a, a little more than a century. That power was then broken by Persia. So we're looking at another peripheral people, uh, the Persian Empire. Well, actually, sorry, it was the Medes of northern Persia first came in and uh, beat down Assyria. And then the Neo-Babylonian Empire lasted for a little while. Its last ruler was uh, called in Latin Nabonidus, and he was famous for being very into archaeology and the history of Mesopotamia. He was not considered a very good ruler because he wasn't very interested in running his country. He spent years doing uh, antiquitarian investigations in the desert to find runes and, and statues and, and artifacts and whatever he could. Um, he was a very religiously devout man, but not a particularly interested ruler. And uh, he was then crushed by the rising power of Persia. So that is the peoples of you know, uh, the Achaemenid dynasty of Cyrus the Great, which uh, was one of those other peripheral peoples uh, who had emerged basically because of the power and wealth of the centuries of Mesopotamian civilization. Um, in, and they had arisen in eastern, sorry, southern, what's well, not southern Persia, the province of Fars. Fars, hence the word Persian. 
Persian comes from Fars. After the conquest of Babylon by Cyrus the Great, the Persians then took control of all of what used to be the Assyrian Empire, all of the, Neo- the Neo-Babylonian Empire. They took control of what's now Syria and Lebanon and Palestine and Egypt. And they also, of course, controlled their homeland of southern Iran, of Fars, and even went farther east than that, and then moved into Anatolia, and then uh, even into Greece. But the Persian Empire did sort of keep up the ancient Mesopotamian traditions. The Persian kings liked to portray themselves as Mesopotamian rulers. They made sacrifices to the ancient Mesopotamian gods, Marduk, the famous god of Babylon. But a free Babylonia, a free Iraq did not emerge. Again, no political power established itself in Iraq after the defeat of the Neo-Babylonians by Cyrus the Great until, I guess you could say, until the 20th century. It is sort of unnatural to have a power based in Iraq simply because of the geography. You're, you've got next to you uh, the Zargos Mountains and the Iranian Plateau. If there's a, a powerful state there, you're going to get conquered. Same thing to the north with the Anatolian Plateau. If there's a powerful state there with the Hittites, the Ottomans, you're going to get conquered. If um, there's a powerful state to the west on the Mediterranean coast, like the Hellenistic dynasties or Rome or uh, the Umayyad Caliphate, you're going to be under their control. So it's very difficult to maintain an independent power in Mesopotamia, especially since the time when uh, these sort of outlying areas have become more civilized and had have had permanent societies built up in them. Now, we shouldn't take as exceptions the fact that the Persians sometimes ruled their empire from Babylonia. Uh, they think of the Persian dynasty after Darius, uh, Ataxerxes ruled mostly from uh, from Babylonia. Later, the Parthians set up a capital in Iraq at uh, Ketesphon, in sort of, sort of near Babylon. Um, none of these really disprove the rule. It was still a Persian empire based on Persian power, or uh, in the case of the Abbasid Caliphate, an Arab empire, or with, with Persian alliances. It was never really run by the people in Mesopotamia. I guess you could argue the Abbasid Caliphate might have um, had a lot of influence from the, the local Mesopotamians. But it wasn't until the establishment of Iraq in the 20th century that you then had, you again had a independent state after the British were kicked out, set up in Mesopotamia. And then we see again in modern times a sort of funny parallel in the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein liked to compare himself to the ancient Babylonians. Uh, It's sort of the logical thing that you would do. I mean, if you found yourself dictator of Iraq, the logical thing to do would be to build on the legacy of ancient Iraq to establish your rule and to build the identity of your people as a united people, especially given the sectarian divisions between the North and the South and the um, and then, of course, the residual Christian population and the ethnic differences between uh, Kurds and Arabs. Um, it makes sense that you would draw on that Mesopotamian history, and Saddam did. He also drew on Arab history. He, in his ideology, Iraq had a, a double-sided um, sort of identity. There was the Arab Islamic identity, and then the ancient Mesopotamian identity. And he took this uh, this LARP, you could say, he took it quite far. 
you probably, some of you may remember from when America invaded Iraq, they talked about the Iraqi Republican Guard, uh, the elite units of Saddam Hussein's army. There were two divisions that were named after Babylonian kings, the Hammurabi division and the Nebuchadnezzar division. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the neo-Babylonian kings late in Babylonian history. Saddam also went so far as to rebuild Babylon, or at least parts of it. Uh, Babylon has only been partially excavated by German scholars. They didn't go that deep in down into the layers, so we don't really know a lot about Babylon. We know Much of what we know comes from other sites throughout the country. Uh, the reason they weren't able to go that deep is because the water table is, is high in Babylon. But Saddam actually built up the ruins of Babylon in some areas. Uh, a lot of historians criticize him for doing so because maybe it wasn't very accurate. And he also had the strange habit of stamping the bricks with uh, this brick was put here by Saddam Hussein and not writing that in in a traditional Akkadian, but writing it in Arabic. But in that regard, Saddam Hussein not only, I think, resembles an ancient Mesopotamian ruler, but in a way, he really fits the pattern of an ancient Mesopotamian ruler. And the things that he had to do as ruler in order to maintain control of that country from that country makes sense if you look at the frame of Mesopotamian history. For one thing, if you're the ruler of Mesopotamia, and you've got these barbarians, barbarian Arabs outside, and you've got enemies in, in Iran and in, in uh, Anatolia, you have to ruthlessly impose conformity and order. And just like the Assyrians, just like Sargon of Akkad, just like the kings of uh, the third dynasty of Ur, he did just that. Another thing about, about Saddam that very much resembles ancient Mesopotamian rulers is he was arrogant and very grandiose. A lot of the inscriptions and records of the ancient kings of Assyria and of uh, Sumer and Akkad are bombastic and talk about the king as being the greatest man ever. It was Sargon of Akkad who was the first king to proclaim himself a god. And certainly before that, Sumerian kings ruled at the grace of the gods. And there was an elaborate ideology in uh, the ancient Mesopotamian records of kingship that is um, in Sumerian Nam Lugalu. Lugal Lu, Lu is king, Lu is man, Gal is great, Nam is a word meaning that turns it into a, a uh, an abstract noun. So Nam Lugalu is kingship. There's an elaborate ideology of kingship having been de having descended from the gods. Because without kingship, you can only have minor states and you can only have warring factions. But once you have an established state, that's really something that you know people hadn't seen before that. They had never been organized in such a great um, a great manner as they were by some of these, uh, by the Sumerian dynasties and then later by Sargon and, and the other uh, Babylonian and Akkadian and Assyrian rulers. What Saddam Hussein's rule shows is just how difficult it is to rule Iraq and to base your power on this, the agricultural peoples of Mesopotamia. Typically, a dynasty comes into Iraq, or a, a tribe, a nation comes into Iraq and sets itself up in power, and it's able to sustain itself based on its, its uh, barbarian vigor. This was true of the first Akkadians, it was true of the Assyrians, it was true of the Babylonians, at least at first. Uh, it was true of the Persians, uh, who came from the mountains, it was true 
of the later Parthians and Sassanids and uh, the Arabs. It is very difficult to set yourself up as a dynasty in Iraq simply because of the geography. You're, you're very exposed and there's very little to defend. In that regard, Saddam Hussein was really kind of an experiment. Uh, the Iraqi state, since uh, the monarchy and since it was uh, no longer under British protection, was really a fragile thing. And the only way you could maintain it was through being extremely brutal to keep every, all those different peoples together and keep them uh, you know, pushing in the same direction and, and sustain your government. That's not to say that I think it's okay, but I mean, you know, you should expect if you set up a country in Iraq with no external power base that that's what's going to happen. I mean, it, it, it should be obvious. I began this lecture by pointing out the ways that Mesopotamian history parallels the history of the West since the time of ancient Greece. I've pointed at some of the the ways that the political system has developed from smaller states to bigger and bigger states, albeit with many interruptions and invasions from the outside, and how as the states became bigger and bigger and bigger, they had to become more violent and they had to become more complex and more oppressive. One thing that I haven't really spoken about is they became also more um, exploitative. In the early times, in the early Sumerian city-states, there was certainly organization, the temples and the priests and the kings had to tax the farmers and they had a very they had they developed increasingly intricate systems to do this but there was such a thing early on in Sumer and in Akkad as a free man and in fact it was a whole class of peoples and this is identifiable from the laws of Hammurabi that Hammurabi was very concerned with the status of free men if you harmed a free man it wasn't just a matter of paying a tax like it might be in the case of harming a slave. If you blinded a free man, for instance, you would have, you would be blinded. It was a much higher penalty because, yeah, and those, those more primitive, uh, more violent um, penalties were retained because the state valued free men. Now, that's not to say that there weren't slaves and, and people of lesser classes who had reduced social status. That certainly was true. But as we get to the very end of Mesopotamian civilization, we look at the Assyrians and then the Neo-Babylonians and then, of course, the Persians, we see a great uh, increase in how exploitative the system was. And one of the biggest things uh, was debt, ruling people by debt. I think the best example that I can give to illustrate how exploitative the system had become by Persian times is to point to a particular family that had a lending firm and worked uh, to fill government contracts in southern Mesopotamia in the second half of the 5th century BC. That's about the same time as the classical age of Athens. This was the Marushu family, and we know from we, we know that they were Jewish. Um, you can check that on Wikipedia. That's not just me as a Nazi saying that. But I'll give you a little bit of a, a, a idea of the Marushu family. And again, this is from ancient Iraq by George Hu. Naturally, the great bankers and usurers benefited from the political conditions. The Marushu family of Nippur, for instance, a powerful firm which operated in southern Mesopotamia between 455 and 403 BC, specialized in farming out the lands which Persian officials and 
collectives of soldiers and civil servants owned but refused to cultivate. The firm supplied oxen, agricultural tools, and water for irrigation and took a share in the revenues. Middlemen. They also lent clothes, food, and equipment to people called up for military duty, and they also lent money, and then he has in parentheses, at 40 to 50% interest to those who could uh, not pay their debts or taxes. So you have a Jewish family engaged in predatory lending. Isn't that interesting? But, you know, we can, we can point to endless examples of that throughout history. Why is this Marushu family particularly interesting? Well, a couple reasons. First of all, we haven't really talked about Jews so far, but the Jews were pre present in Babylon in ancient times. You've probably heard the story, or at least are familiar with the story of Daniel and the lions, uh, which happens at Babylon. The Jews, or a number of Jews, um, were, were um, I would say exported, that's the wrong word, exiled from uh, their homeland, or what they allege is their homeland, I guess we could say, to Babylon under after uh, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in the uh, early 500s BC. In fact, they, they had to sack Babylon, or they had, did I say Babylon? Sorry, Jerusalem. They had to take Jerusalem twice. The first time they took it uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar, they set up a puppet government, and then uh, that puppet government revolted when they thought they had a, a chance to break free of Babylonian power. The Babylonians came back, took it over, and uh, moved a bunch of Jews to Babylon. Those Jews were somewhat were famously freed by Cyrus the Great, the Persian, when he came in and uh, took Babylon uh, later in that century and, and threw out uh, King Nabonidus. So what's interesting about this Marashu family is that they are still operating in southern Mesopotamia well after they were allegedly freed or, you know, allowed to go home by Cyrus the Great. Sort of reminds you of, of similar stories of... Uh, it seems that their presence in Babylon wasn't, you know, all that bad. The other thing that's interesting about the Marashu family is that it is a mere example of the greater uh, predatory lending and you know, sort of cap dominance by capital that was going on in the later centuries of the Mesopotamian civilization. In that regard, it resembles our own, which is funny that it isn't really something that people take an interest in, although they probably should. I think it's also interesting when we note that the ancient Greeks would have been very familiar with all of this history. I mean, it wasn't their history. They might, they wouldn't have concerned themselves with the details of uh, who was king of Lagash in the, the, the third millennium BC. But the Greeks would have had access to a lot more information about Babylon than uh, Western scholars did prior to the discovery of and the decipherment of cuneiform. Couple reasons that we can suppose this. Uh, for one thing, uh, Herodotus writes quite a bit about the Near East and about Egypt. Uh, for another thing, we know that after Alexander the Great, a number of Greek colonies were established in Mesopotamia, about a dozen, uh, and settled by native Greeks, who then uh, over the centuries assimilated, but who would have at the time been able to at least relate their understanding of the local civilization to other Greeks who might have traveled there. The most important, I think, reason that we should, pre we should suppose that the Greeks had a fairly good idea of what was going on in Mesopotamian civilization is that 
there were Mesopotamian scholars who were intimately familiar and brought up in the Akkadian and Sumerian literary traditions who learned Greek and then wrote about their own history. The most famous of these is a certain Berusus who wrote a book that is called the Babyloniaca in Greek. It no longer exists, but it was a, at least a, in broad strokes, a history of Mesopotamia and of uh, Babylonia. For Egypt, although it's not Mesopotamian civilization, it's sort of similar. We had a history in the writer Manatho also does not survive. But these works were known in ancient Greece and would have been talked about and, and known about. It is, I think, not without interest that Alexander the Great was very interested in Mesopotamian civilization and spent a lot of time at Babylon, or spent some time at Babylon and, and tried to understand it. It was at just about this time between 500 BC and, and 300 BC and the death of Alexander, 323 BC, that you had the flowering of Greek philosophy. Now, a lot of people have tried to draw similarities between this and ancient Babylon and tried to say, well, the Greeks must have learned some of this stuff from Babylon. That might be true, but it has not yet been proven. Babylonian philosophy, from what we can tell, was fairly primitive. We do not have any direct in, um, information in their extensive records, although granted, academia hasn't done a great job translating and, and processing all the information, but we do not have any specific records of the Babylonians asking questions about epistemology. That is, how do we know? That is sort of the key to philosophy. You can't really do systematic thinking until you start asking, how do we know? And that really only began with Socrates and Plato. Uh, although there were, I guess there were some, some attempts on the part of the pre-Socratic philosophers to ask questions like that. But in what little evidence, what little remains of the pre-Socratic philosophers, we don't see them having really gotten into the question of epistemology, of how do we know? And there's also the question of metaphysics, epistemology and metaphysics are the two most important disciplines within philosophy. Metaphysics asks what is or what exists. Epistemology, how do we know? We don't really have any evidence of the Babylonians engaging in these sort of deep questions and systematic thinking. But we do know that the Greeks had some contact with them. And I think it's safe to say that when the ancient Greeks were doing their political philosophy and were asking themselves about how, how should we best build a society, what are the precepts by which we should organize it, what are ethics, they had at their fingertips, or if not at their fingertips, then at least they could find copies of, of works about Babylonian history or they could talk to people who knew about Babylonian history. And they could, they could see from 500 BC or 400 BC, they could look back almost 3,000 years through a recorded history and see it laid out from its rise to its, its glory days, to its decadence and its fall. And I think they must have realized some of the follies of the late stage of Babylonian civilization and of Persian civilization. You see this sort of reflected in the Bible where it talks about the whore of Babylon. Babylon was notorious for its uh, moral license and its depravity. Uh, of course, we, we don't really know too much about what all that entailed, but we can imagine that uh, sexual mores were loosened up, that uh, things were done on, the, and, and we, we certainly know about the economy, that it was very much based on debt and based on uh, 
sort of bullying people through capital and through the legal system. All of, in a way, I think we could say that much of Greek philosophy and much of our, the beginning of our civilization was with the understanding that this is not how we want things to go. And even if that wasn't the case with the Greeks, we should know from the scholarship since the 19th century that allowed us direct access to the Akkadian Sumerian records, that this is not what we want. And in this regard too, Saddam Hussein and his reign in Iraq sort of fits into the same pattern. Saddam was in charge of a precariously independent Iraq. Uh, it had throughout, its, throughout the history of the 20th century, the 1960s and 70s, been at the mercy of the British and the Americans to a certain degree, and later to the Israelis. Uh, you may not remember that the Israelis bombed uh, the Iraqi nuclear reactor uh, unprovoked in 1980. This was before Saddam had invaded Iran or invaded Kuwait. Saddam, I believe it was 1980, uh, did invade Iran. This was at the behest of the U.S. government. And one could fault him as a ruler and say that probably wasn't the best thing to do. You probably shouldn't have done that. But I'm sure he had his reasons. It sort of fits into the pattern of a great Mesopotamian ruler of uh, raiding into the Zargos Mountains and taking prisoners. But in the end, what Iraq ended up with was Iraq as a state ended up in the same position that many of the victims of the Murashu family or any of the debt slaves of ancient Babylonia ended up in. It as a state owed massive debts to its neighbors and to, or to Kuwait especially, uh, and to uh, the West. So it tried to maintain its freedom uh, from debt slavery, and I'm sure this is familiar should be this story. I'm sure is familiar to anybody who you know knows the real story of the 20th century and of uh, the German attempts to break out of Western debt slavery, Jewish debt slavery. He invaded Kuwait, and the U.S. was dragged into a war over this seemingly unimportant. I mean, from a, from a, the point of view of an American citizen, why does Kuwait matter? Why do we care if? Let's say that the ripping babies from the incubator story is true, as uh, the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter said before Congress. It wasn't true, but let's suppose it is true. Why do we care? Um, nobody could really explain that. George w, eight, uh, sorry, George H.W. Bush was president back then. Initially was somewhat frank about it and said we have to protect our access to oil. Um, that didn't go over well in the polls. So he changed it to something about freedom or this or that or the other thing. And so the U.S. got involved and threw Saddam out of Kuwait, at, uh, killed a lot of Iraqis doing so, and then uh, instigated a revolt among the Kurds and the Shiites, and then didn't back up those people. And then Saddam had to crush them and did crush them with uh, no, uh, no mercy whatsoever. So I bring that up mainly to mention or to point out that while, yes, Saddam's rule was brutal, yeah, I wouldn't want to live in a country run by Saddam Hussein, it probably was the only way to run a country in that region, given Iraq's geographical position, given the neighbors it had, given the power base that Saddam had at his disposal. And it is probably the only way that you could run that country and keep it free from international debt slavery. Now you see, since Iraq has been uh, conquered and brought into the sort of world system with a, a kind of fake and gay puppet government in Baghdad, 
it is the southern part of the country is more falling back under the control of Iran a little bit, still kind of America, hard to say. The northern part of the country, as I pointed out with ISIS, is sort of drifting in its own way. Uh, it makes more sense for northern Iraq, that is the, the, uh, the, the former homeland of the Assyrians, to be united with western or eastern Syria. I'm not saying that's desirable, but that's what kind of makes more sense from a historical and political point of view, geographical point of view. And you're seeing that happen now. So to wrap up, I want to point you in the direction of some other books that you can look at to find out more about this history. I have found it very difficult to summarize all this myself. I've read sporadically about Mesopotamia for a long time, but I've never really devoted any you know, consistent study to it. The main books that I've read, um, at least sporadically, I've read parts of them here and there. I probably end up reading the same parts every few years are the book that I've been quoting from a few times, Ancient Iraq by Georges Roux. There is another one called Ancient Mesopotamia, Portrait of a Dead Civilization by Leo Oppenheim. He's one of the most famous Mesopotamian scholars, might be Jew, I don't know. Book's fine. Uh, and then the other uh, book that is probably most common uh, among, you know, with these other two, these top three most common books, the third one is uh, by Noah Kramer, Samuel Noah Kramer. Yeah, probably Jewish. Um, and it's called The Sumerians. He focuses more on that first 800 years of Mesopotamian history. Some other books. One book that is very rarely known and that if you're interested in the question of the organization of the Babylonian economy and of the debt slavery uh, and how that was organized and how that was carried out, the most important book probably... Um, and maybe an Assyriologist would tell you otherwise, but I think the most important book is uh, by um, a Russian scholar, or I think central, or I think uh, Caucasian, but he wrote in Russian called Dandamayev. And this book is very rare. It is translated into English in a, in a weird, like the copy I have is in, in typeset, just uh, like reading typewriter pages, but. It's a very good book, very well sourced. He actually, this is the guy who did what the Western scholars should have been doing and never did or were too lazy to do and went through many of the economic, the boring economic records and tax records and social material found in Babylonian archives and, and Mesopotamian archives and put together a general picture or tried to put together a general picture of the uh, Babylonian economy. Well, specifically on slavery, it's called, the book is called Slavery in Babylonia. It was felt important enough uh, to be translated into English. It does not, unfortunately, talk about the Jewish issue uh, explicitly. I mean, you know, there's the Marashu family. That's a good place to start. But, you know, it, to what extent, like, Jews were uh, taking advantage of their time in Babylon to exploit people, we can, we can guess. But, you know, uh, I think, you know, that's, that's sort of to miss the point. It's the overall... The, the spiritual Jews, as it were, the overall structure of creditors and debt slavery that is interesting to me specifically. And that is something that, that uh, you'll find in, in that book, Slavery in, in Babylonia. As far as the languages are concerned, I'll mention a couple. Um, the standard textbook on Akkadian is by a scholar named John Hunegard. It's called uh, A Grammar of Akkadian. This is an extremely dense book, also extremely expensive. Uh, it is not for the faint of heart. 
is if you are a language fanatic and you, or you want to become an Assyriologist, you should probably get that book. But um, I use that as a textbook when I, I took a class in or a semester of uh, Akkadian when I was uh, in college at Ohio State. I bring that up just because um, I sort of did get an inside look at how the language works and, and how the culture worked. Um, in order to take the class, it was a, a funny story. You had to have already more or less or have a, a good background in a Semitic language. I was, suffice to say, the only person whose, back, whose Semitic language background was in Arabic and not Hebrew. So in conclusion, I want to recapitulate basically what I said at the beginning, which was that Babylonian history, Mesopotamian history is interesting to us because it is something that we can examine critically and without really any positive or negative feeling. We can examine it just based on the facts. That is possible mainly because there is nobody alive today who is a Mesopotamian. And I mean in the spiritual sense. There is nobody who still believes in those gods. There's nobody who still speaks those languages. There's nobody who has maintained those cultural mores since ancient Babylon. And in fact, probably not in the last 1800 years or so. There are contrary wise examples or many people who are educated in say the Islamic uh, system, the philosophy of many thinkers and, and a whole religious system and moral system that most basically none of us know anything about uh, or know very little about or know only on the surface. The same could be said of uh, China and, and uh, Confucius. There are many people in China who know very well their ancient history and their ancient culture that you know very few people in the West really ever um, get to know in any detail. But there is nobody alive today and there's been nobody since probably the first or second century AD who was educated in the ancient Akkadian and Sumerian literatures and languages. And so it is truly a dead civilization. I, for one, I think you'll agree with me, would like to avoid that fate for my culture, my civilization. There are three things, at least in the light of the foregoing discussion, there are three main things that, that we can all do to avoid that. Uh, two of them are a broad perspective. One of them is, is, in, is individual. The broad perspective, uh, we need to get rid of the debt slavery system that has emerged particularly in the last uh, 100 years under uh, mainly Jewish control of Western civilization. We need to radically reform the economic and political systems to ensure that political leadership, political decisions are made on the basis of what is right, what is just for all of society and, and um, not just for a narrow economic elite. That is how all long-functioning and great uh, civilizations are established. Only uh, when you have an economic, a strong economic dominance by a small clique, it can only last for so long and it has to last, it has to sustain itself by brutal repression of anybody who disagrees with it. Secondly, in order to bring that about, we need a sort of a cultural renaissance. Uh, a lot of people say that, but when I say that, what I specifically mean is we need to retrench ourselves in the ideas, the real core ideas of our civilization, going back to the ancient Greeks, philosophy of the ancient Greeks, and also the political philosophy that is very little known in America and England, and that is the political philosophy of Germany and uh, Europe, broadly speaking. 
uh, particularly men like Adolf Hitler. And then finally, uh, what can you do? What can we each do individually to achieve these goals? You need to find a way to get involved in these politics. Unfortunately, I can't tell you the exact track by which any person can do that. It is very difficult. It's not like joining the army where you just go down to the recruiting station and you sign a contract and they give you a date and you report uh, and the institution has already established all the, they figured out how they're going to pay you, how they're going to equip you, how they're going to train you. It's not like that at all. It is, unfortunately, there is very little to no bureaucracy and there's great disparities in the allocation uh, of funding and of uh, rewards. So it's basically on you. And the best thing that you can do is try to get in touch with other people who understand the political problems that you know, and, and can you can talk to and who can uh, develop help develop your understanding and who you can uh, work with to, to develop their understanding of the political problems and, and how we can go about uh, solving them. But that's really on you to find a way to get involved. Uh, mainly, I would say, try to join a TRS pool party. That isn't a sure thing. A lot of people, a lot of good people get rejected from groups like that just because of personal foibles or mistakes or misunderstandings. But you have to keep trying. You have to try other things. Uh, really, you have to try to get in touch with other people who think like you do and who think about politics. And you also have to be able to take reasonable risks. That's a difficult thing to do. It's difficult to judge what is a reasonable risk, what isn't a reasonable risk. Of course, do nothing illegal, keep everything above board, but you are going to face the dangers of, of harassment from the entire system, and, and you should understand that. But it is incumbent upon you to do it. So uh, with that said, hope to talk to you next week. Happy July 20th. Deutschland, du wirst leuchten stehen, mögen wir auch untergehen. Vorwärts, vorwärts, schmettern die hellen Fanfaren. Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren. Ist das Ziel auch noch so hoch? Jugend zwingt es doch. Wir gehören dir, wir Kameraden.